Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A growing nuclear risk in the Northwest is the headline. Hanford uh, Nuclear Sites Contamination is getting downright spooky. On the line with us is Tom Carpenter. He's the executive director of Hanford Challenge. HanfordChallenge.org is the website. The Twitter handle is Hanford, H-A-N-F-O-R-D-C, the letter C. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. Tell us what's what's going on. At, first of all, uh, for people who may not be familiar with this, what exactly are we referring to when we refer to Hanford? Okay, well, the Hanford site is a, uh, a, a former Cold War facility that made plutonium for nuclear bombs. It started in World War II and ran for 45 years with nine nuclear reactors, and it, it took the radioactive fuel, separated that out, uh, it made a big mess in the process. And so with the last, uh, you know, 30 years, it's been in a, a cleanup mode. It's the worst contaminated facility in the Western Hemisphere. The, uh, you know, the uh, inventories of nuclear waste there are uh, just immense. And so this is a, a big problem uh, for the United States to pay for this cleanup or to even accomplish the cleanup because we don't, we don't have anything like it. Uh, it's never happened before like this. And so there are a lot of technical and managerial and, and actually corruption challenges going on. I'm, I'm concerned about the, the contamination challenges, about the possibility that uh, those of us who live within a few hundred miles of Hanford or even you know, downwind from Hanford, which is pretty much the rest of the United States, depending on the prevailing winds, um, might be exposed to something quite dangerous. Is there, is there so much radioactive material there that uh, either A, it could uh, start fissioning and produce something like we saw at Chernobyl, or B, that it could simply uh, you know, provoke more unintended releases uh, you know, like, like we saw with Three Mile Island or whatnot? I mean, it, what, how, how severe is the situation? What kind of analogy could you draw? Is it, this is not Fukushima, is it? No, it's not the same as reactors, but the contamination uh, issues. So Hanford has all these buildings and areas where there's a lot of contamination. Uh, we refer to that as uh, high-level nuclear waste. Uh, and some of the terms for these uh, radionuclides might be familiar to listeners, like cesium-137 and strontium-90. 
these are highly radioactive materials that don't belong in our food supply, don't belong uh, in our water, uh, or certainly in the soil or the river. But that's exactly the risk that we are worried about. You know, so uh, for instance, there's a building out there that, that holds uh, some 56 million curies of radioactivity. And uh, a curie is a unit of, ra- of measurement of radiation. And if you've heard of Chernobyl, uh, that put out about two and a half mil- million curies of cesium-137. And Fukushima put out nine million curies. Well, this is 56 million. Uh, these pools in this building, I mean, these were, this was built in 1970. Uh, it wasn't designed to last as long as they've been using it. There's earthquake faults out there with a bigger punch than they thought it could deliver when they designed this. Uh, and so there is, uh, you know, there's a real concern that the concrete in these pools has failed uh, and that they need to get this stuff out. Because if you were to lose a bit of the cooling water, then you could and lose maybe 10 percent to the air of the cesium and strontium-90, then that would be on par with what happened at Fukushima and Chernobyl. That's just one, one facility. There are underground nuclear waste tanks. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff just in the soil that is connected to the river. Uh, and so, but the big thing to worry about is, uh, in the short term, uh, a risk from explosions or fires in this stuff going airborne. In the long term, for future generations, is that the slow motion fallout of this stuff seeping into the river and permanently contaminating the river, the, the crops, uh, the fish, the animals, and eventually the humans that live nearby. I think everybody knows that there is a cancer risk associated with radiation. In addition to if there's high levels of radiation, uh, radiation poisoning risk. But uh, cesium, the body thinks the cesium is potassium. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. The body thinks the cesium is potassium, so radioactive cesium gets absorbed into the body and embeds into our muscles. And you know, high levels of radioactive cesium, or even uh, not even high levels, even moderate levels, can accumulate in the heart, one of the most you know active muscles in the body, and literally burn holes through it. Calls cause it's called uh, a condition called cesium heart. Uh, where the heart eventually fails because it's got heart holes burned in it by the cesium. And strontium, the body thinks, is calcium and or phosphorus, one or the other. You, you tell me, and, and puts it into our bones where it causes bone cancer. Do I have that right? No, that's right. Strontium-90 acts like calcium and goes to the bone. And cesium-137 is, you know, the body recognizes that as potassium. So both are, uh, are useful uh, for living organisms and... Uh, they instead of helping you, however, they irradiate, um, you know, the, the cells and destroy DNA uh, or injure DNA in the cells. Uh, that's the blueprint for, you know, how, you know, our bodies are. So, uh, you know, the fact that we have, you know, healthy bodies is, is really dependent on having healthy DNA and healthy cells. So this is a long term tragedy or ticking time bomb if this stuff were to get out. Yeah, I uh, into the environment. Yeah, I moved to Germany in May of 1986. Literally a week after, in fact, I flew in uh, on my birthday, May 7th, and that was about a week after Chernobyl blew up, as I recall. It was raining that day when I arrived in Frankfurt, and the city was evacuated. I mean, there was nobody on the streets. I, you know, I got into the hotel, and they took my coat and sent it off to the cleaners. 
because he said your coat is now covered with radioactive material. I mean, the cloud from Chernobyl was passing over. It was grim, and we, and we lived there for a year, and we used to, I used to walk around with a Geiger counter and find hot spots in the forest. You could make the Geiger counter trip off in the supermarket. There were certain foods, particularly the mushrooms, it would just go nuts. And the milk, the milk, they, they, they kept raising the level of uh, whatever it was in the milk, uh, presumably cesium, because it was passing through the cows. You know, it went from one becquerel per liter to 10 to 50 to, I think they ended up at 500 becquerels per liter as being the, the legal limit. Is that the sort of thing that we could anticipate here if this were to go south? And to this point, I mean, this has been, you said this has been going on at Hanford since the 50s. How much radiation has already escaped into the environment around Hanford? Oh, just huge amounts into the river, into the air. It's caused downwinders to get cancer. These are farmers mostly and people who live nearby the site. And there have been lawsuits about that. The people who are really at most risk are the workers at the site, even the workers, you know, past workers, but also current workers doing the cleanup. And they're getting big exposures to chemical vapors, to radiation, and their cancer rates are off the charts. And as a result, the government recognizes this and has a compensation program in place. And I should mention that the state of Washington, a couple of years ago in 2018, passed a law that reformed our worker compensation law that gave Hanford workers a leg up. If you can imagine, it's hard to prove that their chemicals or their radiation caused your cancer, just like with cigarettes. Right. It's like, prove that my camel cigarette caused your lung cancer. Well, Hanford's radiation and Hanford's chemicals also cause cancers and other heart disease and neurological disease. So given that the state legislature reform the, uh, the law here in the state of Washington to say you don't have to show that causation. If you have that disease and you worked with these materials at the Hanford site, you're in, you get compensation and medical care. That's great. Well, That's like what they did with asbestos. Right. Yeah. And the federal government appealed that decision under Trump, huh. right? And, and lost in the federal court, lost in the Ninth Circuit, but to our astonishment, the Biden administration appealed that to the Supreme Court. Um, oh, and so, wow. you know, the state apparatus, the, the, uh, the governor, the attorney general, to the, uh, the Senate have all protested, obviously, as have we. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're asking listeners and, and viewers today to uh, go to our website and take action to send a message to Joe Biden saying to drop this Supreme Court appeal and give justice to these workers. That's Hanford Challenge, H-A-N-F-O-R-D, challenge.org is the website. We're talking to Tom Carpenter, the executive director. So uh, are the, is that the principal call for action right now? I'm assuming that um, the federal government actually is on this issue of trying to clean up Hanford? Yeah, what they're really on to is trying to find shortcuts. So oh, they're no. trying to relabel the high-level waste in these tanks, which is a term of art. High-level waste is in the law. Uh, and they're trying to redefine it. And it looks like, you know, cross out the words high level and put the words low level on it so that they, can't, they don't have to then, you know, vitrify the waste, meaning put it in the glass and put that into a deep geological repository. Right, so, which is again, expensive. I'll go back to, yeah, what I said earlier, which is this is the largest repository of high level waste in the United States and, and in this part of the world. Uh, and it's expensive and it's complicated. Uh, to say that it's not high-level waste flies in the face of science. 
uh, and we are fighting that, as is the state of Washington. Uh, uh, the attorney general here is Bob Ferguson. He's fantastic. Uh, he's with us on this. We wrote a letter to the Biden administration. That is another action alert saying stop the relabeling. Right. You know, just deal with this. What's the river that runs by Hanford, and where does that water end up? I'm assuming it ends up in the Columbia? It's uh, Yeah, the river is the Columbia. Oh. They built the Hanford site on the Columbia River. That's where all of the uh, reactors were located. And that is the toilet that Hanford has been dumping into since its inception in 1945. Wow. Uh, and continues to be so now. There are still some streams of radiation and chemicals going into that, but much, much less than there used to be. So even now there's radiation leaking from Hanford into the Columbia River as we speak? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and not an alarming amount. You know, right. don't, you know, don't, uh, don't freak out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But get active. I get it. I get it. HanfordChallenge.org is the website. Hanford C on Twitter. Tom Carpenter is the executive director. Tom, thanks a lot for dropping by. Great, great talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate My pleasure. It. Michael in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind today? Oh, hey, Tom. Thanks for fighting the good fight. And since the murder rates went up last year, a lot of Republicans were like, you know, doing that usual, oh, Democrats are soft on crime baloney. There's one thing that the left has never really brought up, and that's crime really is, is the only reason why crime is, even is as bad as it is is because of the war on drugs. We all acknowledge prohibition was a yeah. We all acknowledge prohibition was a failure. It did nothing but empower the mafia and various gangs. And alcohol is not even that addictive. And now, because of the war on drugs, various organized crimes criminals have a monopoly on these very addictive drugs. And it's you know financially empowering them. It's you know it's giving them a lot of revenue to buy weapons and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I'm with you. I mean, this is this is why we decriminalize pot, and it's why the state of Oregon has decriminalized all drugs, all drugs, and it doesn't mean you can sell them, but you, you can't get a, you don't go to jail anymore for possessing them. And this is really a medical problem, not a, a legal problem, or it should be a medical problem. Portugal decriminalized all drugs almost 20 years ago, and it broke the back of organized crime. It reduced the level of drug use. I mean, you're always going to have a certain percentage of people who are going to go over the edge, you know, it's, and it's a small percentage, one, two, three percent of the population who get addicted to substances outside the mainstream, outside of caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. And, you know, we tried for 40 years, we tried to stop that, well, arguably for 90 years, we tried to stop that with laws and with jails and prisons, and all we did was destroy a lot of people's lives, even worse than the drugs would have destroyed them. You know, and frankly, I think the biggest problem we've got with drug pushers in this country are people like the Sackler family, you know, pushing legal drugs. But I'm with you, Michael. I hear you, and I am with you. Thank you for the call. Joe in Loxahatchee, Florida. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Oh, thank you for taking my call. You were talking about the uh, nuclear power plants just a little while ago. Yeah. And, and it, it jogged me uh, where about three months ago, I researched Turkey Point nuclear power plant south of Miami. Mm-hmm. And it's, you can research this online yourself. There's a minor, small newspaper that carried the story 
where there was an incident at the plant where I'm a retired marine engineer, chief engineer on the steamboats, mm-hmm. and they had dug 10 miles of canals to put in cooling lines for apparently possibly the air ejectors, which uh, get rid of the breakdown of the air and hydrogen and oxygen from the water. And apparently, in my estimation, a safety valve blew and put in high-pressure irradiated steam into the pipeline, and they had to dump something like 30 tons of salt on top of those pipes to not contaminate the air around the place. Wow. Yeah, and there's so, pictures in there of... This, this, was, uh, uh, this was radioactive hydrogen, trit- tritium? You know, I don't know what they're using down in there. No, no. Well, that's that's what's produced when when water gets broken up by radiation, and and you get you know just a, a wild. Uh, I don't know if it's a proton or what it is, but uh, you know it's a tritium. Anyway, uh, back to you, Joe. I'm I'm out of my depth okay. here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, there's pictures of salt suds uh, about a foot high around a nuclear power plant, hmm. and it goes into this. Uh, Biscayne Bay and contaminates Biscayne Bay going up to Miami. Oh, geez. Yeah, I mean, in, everybody's like over the weekend on one of the shows, I think it was on Fareed Zakaria's show, oh, yeah, nuclear, there's no waste, there's no no carbon, There's which that's not true. I mean, there's an enormous amount of carbon in mining uranium, in transporting uranium, in refining uranium, in getting it into the plants. There's an enormous amount of carbon in, in making the concrete for the plants, making the steel for the plants, building the plants, maintaining the plants. Uh, you know, nuclear power plants are not carbon free and they produce massive amounts of radioactive waste. And, you know, we've got no way to deal with this radioactive waste. So, yeah. Joe, thank you. Amy in Carlton, Oregon. Hey, Amy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, about the debt limit and how we talk about it. Say you go out with your credit card and you purchase a service that is billed monthly. At the time that you purchase it, you have available credit for $2,000, but the service over the term of the contract is $10,000. When you reach your credit limit, you still owe $8,000 on that service that you have to pay because you signed the contract. So you have to get your credit limit increased to cover that. That's a good metaphor. That's or analogy. That's the way we need to talk about it. Yeah. I get it. I agree with you, Amy. I think, though, that the strategy that the Democrats have come upon, and I think it's probably a good one, is to say all we're trying to do is pay off the debts of the previous years. And in this case, you know, Donald Trump's $8 trillion in debt that he ran up in four years. We're paying the contract that was signed during the Trump administration that didn't have enough credit available for the contract they signed. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Thank you very much for that. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave, thanks for watching this on YouTube. What's up? Well, I feel like I'm, I'm giving in to my Stockholm syndrome, and I'm going to have to vote Republican next time. How I think, so? I think, well, if the Republicans even get close with their threat, they're getting close to discounting the dollar. It'll cause a recession. That will then be we don't have the, no no president has the ability to discount the dollar. The only the only thing that can affect the value. Well, I'm of the saying dollar. the Republicans are by the by bringing us 
to a default. Oh, I see. You know, it's only been put off to December 3rd. Right. We don't, the Democrats get, don't play these games and the Republicans are in, are in power, but the Republicans are, are threatening all of us. And um, Right. So, so I, I'm baffled, Dave. You're, you're pointing out that the Republicans behave in a way that, uh, shall we say, lacks honor and right. harms the country. But then you're going to have to vote Republican next time? What am I missing here? Well, I would like to see a president going to West Virginia and Arizona calling these two senators out, which are weakening the Democratic Party, and looking for primary components personally. I think, um, though, that that could cause him to lose the Senate. You know, Joe Biden's only had one ambassador confirmed because Ted Cruz has put a hold on all his ambassador positions. Like, the whole federal government is filled with giant holes that, uh, that Donald Trump drilled again, in. Again, that's why I think we're all Stockholm victims. I'm fighting back. I mean, we had... We had I'm not, I'm not agreeing with my captors. FDR, FDR has, has said he welcomes their hatred. That's what we need at right. this point in time. Right. I agree. But, you know, they does not include Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin right now. Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are Democrats. I mean, I think it's important to point out what they're doing and why. But I also think it's important not to push them out of the party. If you do, you're, you know, you're handing the Senate to the Republicans tomorrow morning. You really want to do well, that? I mean, the U.S. having a debt default when it's the reserve currency right, is, of the world. is right out of a Batman episode of the 60s. Sure. I mean, yeah, Mitch McConnell is the joker. Out of Get Smart. It's, or is it's, he the juggler? Right. Yeah. And it's, it's the chaos out of Get Smart. Yeah. I mean, that's the level that they're playing at. And if the Democrats aren't going are gonna to continue to call them my friends, I don't know. I, I think we're all that's Stockholm a, victims. It's a, it's a rhetorical device. But I, I would, uh, you know, and Dave... I think to the point, I would agree that I would like to see Chuck Schumer being a little more active. <laughs> but, you know, what can you say? It's I'm not Chuck Schumer and I don't have any control over him. Dave, thank you for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Tom Hartman here with you. A couple of two quick stories here I wanted to share with you and, and also, you know, put on the table for us to discuss. Um, I'm on Donald Trump's email list, as, as you know, I've been talking about it for the better part of six years, and uh, both me and Fred Flintstone now, and, and, I, th and I think they're uh, particularly targeting me, uh, you know, I, I, as Fred Flintstone, I gave 
five bucks or maybe 15, I think it was $5 to, to Trump back in 2015 when he was in the primary, along with a bunch of other candidates just to get on their email lists. As, as Fred Flintstone, but then about uh, the middle of the Trump presidency, late 2018, early 2019, they were selling, Donald Trump's uh, website was selling a Trump coloring book. And I just had to see this thing and it was like 30 bucks and so I bought one. And I, I parted with $30 of my money and gave it to Donald Trump and ever since then, I am just like, I'm getting emails from Rudy Giuliani. I got one this morning from Rudy Giuliani. I get them from Newt Gingrich. I get them from Donald Trump. I get them. Yesterday, I got seven fundraising emails just from Donald Trump and another three or four e uh, fundraising emails from people in Trump's circle. And one of the emails that I got from Donald Trump yesterday said, and I quote, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, which we have thoroughly and conclusively documented, Republicans will not be voting in 22 or 24. It is the single most important thing for Republicans to do. Now, what he's saying here is that the people who follow him will only vote for Republicans who want to end democracy. Let's be very clear about this. What he's talking about is saying elections don't matter. What the will of the popular vote, you know, it, you know, it turns out to be, does not matter. What matters is what the election board says or what the state says when our politicians get involved. They're setting up the theft of the 2022 and 24 elections. And they're doing it right in front of us. And now Trump is threatening the rest of the Republican Party. And there's not much of it left that hasn't turned Trumpy. But people like Brad Raffsenperger, the, the uh, Secretary of State in, in Georgia, who continues to say, you know, Joe Biden actually won the election down here in Georgia. He oversaw the election. And there's a Trumpy guy running against him, trying to primary him, and probably will succeed. And this is what Trump is saying. So the question is, you know, will Republican voters refuse to vote for non-Trumpy candidates in 2022 and 2024? I mean, is this the end of the Republican Party? I don't think Trump is bluffing here. I think this is a very real thing and a very real problem. Also, you've got, uh, I mean, that's one piece of it. There's another, another quick story I wanted to just put on your dashboard and, and you know, feel free to call in and, and share your thoughts on it. Um, this was a Jeff Tiedrich quote yesterday, uh, you know, one of his uh, text messages or his uh, uh, tweets. He said, if teachers, uh, well, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the tweet right in front of me. But basically what he said is, let's see, teachers who don't believe in science are resigning. Cops who don't believe in public safety are resigning. And nurses who don't believe in science, in medical science, are resigning. How is that a bad thing? And I'm like, yeah, and let's add a few to that. You know, pilots who don't believe in public safety are resigning. How is that a bad thing? Right? I, what am I missing here? Why do we have to coddle and, nur and, and nurture and, and nurse these people along? Oh, you know, we're so sorry. Maybe you can get a religious exemption. We'll give you another month to think about it. Why? Do you really want teachers who don't believe in science? Nurses who don't believe in medicine? Cops who don't believe in public safety? Really? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. As Tedrick says, let them quit or get fired. I'm failing to see the downside to this. Right? <laughs>
On the line with us is Sarah Kenzier, the writer and scholar, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, which I listen to regularly. It's one of the really great podcasts out there. Her website, S-A-R-A-H-K-E-N-D-Z-I-O-R.com. Sarah Kenzier also is her Twitter handle, also at Gaslit Nation. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to the program. I read this tweet thread, this Twitter thread that you put out about Merrick Garland and learned a whole bunch of stuff I had no idea about, and it is extraordinarily troubling. Uh, can you bring our, our listeners and viewers up to speed on this? Sure. Um, I'm not completely certain which thread you're referring to. Uh, it's, the one about, it's, it's the one about Merrick Garland as a mafia state enabler. Ah, yeah. I mean, all that is is a, you know, factual recollection of the things that Merrick Garland has done since being appointed attorney general, you know, which is a really horrible list of protecting Trump, protecting the Trump administration, not protecting America, and acting in many ways as a personal attorney for Trump in a similar fashion to Bill Barr. And this is, you know, obviously distressing and disappointing because so many people saw Garland uh, as somebody who was going to remedy this corruption within the Department of Justice. But he's just continued it. And so, you know, among the things he's done is protect Trump uh, in a personal lawsuit against E. Jean Carroll, uh, who, you know, who says that Trump raped her. Um, he's defended things Trump and Barr did in office, like the uh, violent beating and gassing of protesters in the summer of 2020. Uh, he's covering up the obstruction of the Mueller probe. He's uh, defending Trump's uh, persecution of journalists. He's refusing to, of course, prosecute the people who planned uh, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, especially high-level elites like Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, and, of course, Steve Bannon. Um, and then a very alarming thing is he defended, Merrick Garland defended uh, Don McGahn uh, against congressional staff, um, against congressional Democratic subpoenas. Uh, so then now there's this big question about, well, what's going to happen with the, uh, you know, Steve Bannon situation, that they actually did subpoena him. And, of course, he defied it. Uh, and it's going to go to the DOJ. Will Merrick Garland protect Steve Bannon? I might guess is. Yes, I do think that that's what he's going to do. And I think Joe Biden should fire him because he's not protecting the country. He's just protecting this narrow band of corrupt elites. I'm with you. About five months ago, I actually wrote an op-ed calling for Merrick Garland to be fired. Um, what I didn't know was the background on him. I mean, what I did know was that he was, a, he was appointed to the federal bench by Bill Clinton when Barack Obama had an opening on the Supreme Court. At that time, there was a, a filibuster you know, the filibuster was in place for Supreme Court justices, and so he needed to get 60 votes. So he went to uh, Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator from Utah at the time, and said, please give me the name of somebody who has some Democratic, uh, you know, association, like was appointed by a Democratic president, but who would be acceptable to Republicans. And Orrin Hatch gave him Merrick Garland's name, and thus Merrick Garland became the appointee for the Supreme Court. And, and I think that because President Obama, a Democratic president, appointed him. A lot of Americans uh, concluded that, therefore, he must be a great Democrat and maybe even a great liberal. Turns out his background is quite different. Tell us about the person who mentored him and, and where Merrick Garland came from. Yeah, absolutely. That person is um, Jamie Gorelick. I just want to make one comment that I think it's not just that Obama nominated him. It was the Republican blowback from people like Mitch McConnell. And so it left uh, Americans with this impression of like, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and that wasn't the case. And I think that, you know, the press fell for that 
narrative big time. But anyway, you know, Merrick Garland started out in the Clinton Department of Justice when Jamie Gorelick, this deeply corrupt kind of big law operative, was working as the deputy attorney general. And she's basically like this Forrest Gump of corruption. Like she's at the fringes and sometimes at the center of all of these major controversies of the last 30 years. Uh, you know, with 9-11, she was the person who wrote the memo that basically prohibited free communication between the FBI and the CIA and, you know, helped lead to the 9-11 attacks. I'm obviously not saying she caused them, but, you know, the uh, difficulties in communicating that she did cause uh, helped allow those attacks to take place. She then went on to defend big oil, uh, British Petroleum, using her connections with the Obama administration to help them get away with oil spills. She was involved in a massive financial scandal at um, Fannie Mae and pocketed over $25 million from that corruption. You know, and I can go on and on. You know, she's currently working for Amazon. She's busting up unions. She represented the University of Phoenix. She represented opioid, uh, big pharma peddlers. But one of the worst things is that when Donald Trump became president, she decided to become Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump's lawyer. And she's the person who helped him get past these anti-nepotism laws that are supposed to prevent the abuse of executive power and this kind of dynastic kleptocracy that the Trump family was seeking, and she helped them maintain their positions in office. And, you know, she really has this attraction to the absolute worst, most reprehensible people and causes in this country. And, you know, I remember reading about her and I was thinking, wow, you know, she reminds me of Alan Dershowitz. And then I traced for, you know, who mentored Jamie Gorelick. It's Alan Dershowitz. So there's this straight line between wow. Dershowitz, Gorelick, and uh, Merrick Garland. And Gorelick and was the mentor of, of, of Merrick Garland. Yes, yes. I should declare that. Gorelick mentored Merrick Garland, brought Merrick Garland into the Clinton administration. He was her right-hand man. She refers to him as her wingman, and she's still defending him today. She goes out and writes these, you know, op-eds and says basically, you know, Trump administration people should not be prosecuted. And the, the conflict of interest here that, one, you know, she was a lawyer for Jared and Ivanka, but also she's this lifelong, you know, very close friend, colleague, you know, they went to college together. Like, 40 years of friendship and professional, you know, relationship with Merrick Garland. Like, she's not some neutral observer. And I think she's a very bad influence in that this conflict of interest with their relationship should have been brought up at the confirmation hearings. But the problem is, is that, you know, Gorelick is part of this cesspool in Washington, D.C., just, you know, recurring throughout multiple administrations. And I think that, you know, many senators, many representatives are tangled up in this world. Um, so they maybe wouldn't find it so aberrant uh, as I do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had been operating, until I read your piece and, and got Merrick Garland's backstory, I had been assuming that, uh, you know, the problem was that there were a bunch of Trump holdovers in the Justice Department or, and the FBI, or maybe not even necessarily Trump holdovers, just, you know, right-wingers. I mean, law enforcement tends to attract right-wingers and authoritarians, and that they were sabotaging Merrick Garland's efforts to do what President Biden and most of America want him to do. Now I'm concerned that we have, uh, what's the old phrase, the fifth column that we have, uh, or there's probably a better one, you know, that we've been basically infiltrated. The Justice Department has been captured by the most corrupt element of the corporate wing, the bought-off wing of 
the, you know, which is an increasingly a very, very small fragment of the, or a, an increasingly small fragment of the Democratic Party. It's still arguably the majority, but you know, the progressives are really on the upswing. But that that they've captured the Justice Department. What do we do? You know, outside of calling, I don't think Joe Biden's going to fire his AG. I mean, that would just that would be a, a political firestorm for him. Is there any other way to, or I mean, I'm, I'm blithering here, sir. What, what do we do? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think you should fire him anyway. And I do yeah. think, you know, we have so many fifth columns in this country at this point. You could like build a new White House with them. Like yeah. we have a, a serious problem of internal corruption. And I think, you know, figures like Gorelick really showcase how organized crime, white collar crime, and state corruption have merged in a really terrible way. The same way, you know, plutocrats in the United States and oligarchs from abroad, uh, you know, they work in tandem. They work in these very elite, cloistered, protected networks, and they infiltrate governments. And it's not like a, a conspiracy in a wild sort of way. Like, we know what the motive is. It's greed. It's power. It's money. And it's, uh, you know, immunity from prosecution. And that's why people like Merrick Garland are exceptionally useful. And the problem, I think, that the Biden administration faces and that Biden himself faces is this isn't new. This didn't just happen under Trump. You know, this has been building in the Department of Justice for decades. You know, you can trace it back, um, you know, certainly to like the Nixon era and probably before. And I think when people use the word institutionalist, you know, they often use it as a sort of designator of, you know, upright behavior, lawfulness, uh, you know, fidelity to, um, you know, a continuation of, of institutional integrity. They should really be looking at it as, as a way of protecting people who don't have any integrity, who believe they're above the law, and then they use the apparatus of the law to make that true, to make themselves immune from criminal prosecution. That's what Bannon's doing now. That's what Trump did when he was in office. And, you know, and if you could go back to the Bush administration, the Reagan administration, you know, Iran-Contra, all, all these different scandals, you see the same right. thing at play. And so to get rid of Merrick Garland, you know, that's one thing they should do. But they need to clean house at the whole DOJ and have I'm a new you. transparent agency, you know, that shows what's going on to the American public. And the same is true, too, of the FBI. I think, you know, Christopher Wray is just as troublesome, uh, and, and they're working in tandem. And they also are both connected to the Federalist Society, which is another troubling issue altogether. Oh, God. What can the average person do? How can we influence the Biden administration or President Biden to clean house at the DOJ and to fire Merrick Garland? Just keep telling the truth and telling it loudly and don't worry about, you know, party loyalty. Be loyal to your country. Be loyal to your principles. You know, let the chips fall where they may. Don't hold back. But I mean, is this, is this the sort of thing where we should be calling the White House comment line? We should be calling members of Congress, asking them to put pressure on? Honestly, I see them responding to Twitter. You know, they actually really? did this. Like the House January 6th committee responded to like a viral thread. That seems to be where they're hanging out, just like Trump did uh, on Twitter, on social media. So sadly, that is uh, my advice. But yeah, do whatever you can. Call your senators, call the White House, right. make your voice known, protest, and so on. Well, I retweeted your tweet. So uh, if, if somebody is not, if anybody listening doesn't follow Sarah Kenzier on Twitter, you should, first of all. Uh, you can find it on my timeline if you're or whatever it's called on Twitter. But Sarah, keep up the great work, and I love your podcast, Gaslit Nation. Thank you so much oh, for dropping thank by. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Sarah Kenzier. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls and the deadly secret of the black flag. 
right after this. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Wanted to tell you about uh, this. It's pretty shocking stuff about Merrick Garland, first of all. But but uh, even more shocking is this black flag phenomena that is happening right now across the United States. Give you a little backstory. During the Civil War, there were two times when Confederate soldiers waved a black flag rather than the Confederate battle flag. And those two times were number one, when they were massacring people in black neighborhoods when they were literally massacring African-Americans. The most famous were the Battle of the Crater and a massacre at what's called Fort Pillow. That was the first. The second was where they were saying, we will fight you to the death. We will never surrender. You will not take us prisoner. And if we win, we will not take you prisoner. We will kill you. So now you've got Americans flying this black flag. It, it, it's, it looks like an American flag, except it's entirely black. And you, know, you can just barely see the stars and stripes because they're just different texture fabric, but it's all black fabric. And it literally means we in this house are willing to kill our liberal neighbors. We will kill or die before we will surrender, in this case, to your mask mandate or your vaccine mandate or your uh, teaching critical race theory in the schools, which isn't happening, but still they're hysterical about it. And, uh, and frankly, well, that's a whole nother rant. Um, or or we, will, we will kill or die before we go along. With, I mean, you just fill in the blank, right? B before we go along with your election results. I mean, these black flags are popping up all over the place. And this is something that, I mean, this goes way beyond, oh, we're, you know, like the three percenters. You know, there were only three percent of Americans who supported the American Revolution. We think there should be a second revolution. We're the three percent. Well, first of all, it was more than three percent. It was, you know, solidly in the 20 to 30 percent range. But uh, secondly, uh, this goes way beyond simply saying we'd like a revolution. This is we are willing to kill or die 
We will never surrender. In the context of a civil war, in many cases, these are the people who for years and years have been talking about, a, you know, the second American civil war, the second American revolution. Now they're actually willing to make it happen. This is grim and shocking stuff. There's a great piece by David Nywert over at Daily Kos about it. Black American flags at right-wing protests. Well, the uh, select, Senate Select Committee on uh, 1-6, on, January, on the January 6th attack on our democracy, according to its uh, chairman, Benny Thompson, just said that they will use uh, criminal contempt. They're going to go after Steve Bannon for refusing to testify, refusing to turn over documents. The, the select committee is going to do this. The question is now, this raises a couple of interesting questions. Number one, they're going to have to refer it to the Justice Department for prosecution. Will Merrick Garland prosecute Steve Bannon? Number two, the maximum penalty that Congress can get for this is a year in federal prison and a $100,000 fine. Will Steve Bannon be willing, and it's a misdemeanor, and a one-year sentence in a federal prison, you know, is typically like six months. So would Bannon just do the time, you know, like the way that Adolf Hitler did back in the 20s, and come out a martyr on the other side, just twice as powerful, twice as, you know, even more? I'm guessing that's the way he's thinking about this. And then, you know, when the, when the fascists take over the country, this is Steve Bannon's fever dream, right, in 2024, and, and Donald Trump or somebody like him is president again, well, just pardon him and he'll become the secretary of state or something. It's, it's amazing. Anyhow, just that, that's the, uh, the breaking news, as it were. Boy, there's so much <laughs> that we're talking about here. Ron in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Tom, when I first saw the black flag in town, I had to get a closer look, and I saw it was the Stars and Stripes, and they had it flying upside down. And that made me think right away of bloody Bill Anderson from the Civil War. He was a, a Confederate guerrilla out of Missouri, and he wrote under the black flag, no quarter given, no quarter taken. And that's the uh, message with the flag. Right, that's their and, slogan. Yeah, yeah and, but also during the Civil War, after the massacre of Fort Pillow, uh, especially black troops, that was their battle cry. Remember Fort Pillow. And whenever they encountered uh, rebel scum, they overwhelmed them in glorious fashion under mm. that, uh, that banner, under that slogan. So it can be turned around. But also that black flag is like right in the middle of town, a little little house. Uh, uh, and it's right across from the brand new football field, high school football field in Kitty Corner to the right aid. But uh, you never notice, you know, or think what what it's about unless you, you stop and think of history. Or if you're a right wing fascist, of course that'll that'll register right away. Right. But at the same time, you know, as they're trying to intimidate and send a message, by the same token, they are uh, making themselves prime targets for the civil war that they want. And if it comes, you have an easy uh, pickings right there. If they're still around, that or not, that swept away right away in the. Uh, ensuing conflagration but you know talking about that and and you do that quite often there's something we have to be aware of is that are we prepared for them if they come after us i know you shoot tom you like to shoot in michigan at Mm -hmm. your brother's house are you prepared and you live in oregon a ku klux klan state you know are you prepared for defense because you know you are a target just like alan berg was a target so you know 
God you, forbid. I know you're aware. I don't. Yeah, have no, I, I, I am, Ron, and I don't want to discuss it, frankly. But I, I just find it totally creepy that we've got neighbors who are willing to basically put a sign out front that says, you know, we are willing to kill you. And we are willing to die before we will compromise on something like wearing a mask or getting vaccinated. I, I, I just find it amazing. Brian, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? I'm all in with you there, Tom, on your last statement. It is creepy and it's crazy. I want to talk about Garland. I'm all in with Sarah Kenz here. Uh, Garland needs to go. He's had enough time to, to prosecute, indict Trump, or do something with yeah. Trump. He hasn't. He's allowed these elections to uh, re-audits, re-fraudits to go to manifest. Oh, he, he wrote a nasty letter to Arizona saying, what you're doing is against the law, and then he did nothing. Yeah, that, that's insanity. They're going on, and now they've moved to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all other parts of the country, and Tom, he needs to go. Yeah, that's it's a violation of federal law. I'm with you, Steve. I'm with you. I, you know, I, I, before, I was thinking that, you know, maybe Garland's being sabotaged by right-winger, you know, leftovers from the Trump administration. Now I get it. You know, he's, he's in with them. It's amazing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime by Jennifer Taub. This is from the preface. It's titled Crime Scene. Big cheaters often prosper, and they do it right in front of our faces. You can see them almost daily on the front page of the paper, in your Twitter feed, and on broadcasting cable news programs. Rogues to riches stories are common now. Cheating the public and getting away with it is the new normal. Turn on the television today and you're more likely to see wealthy, white-connected white men secure presidential pardons than watch one getting convicted and sent to prison. Just after Valentine's Day in 2020, President Donald Trump granted clemency to a slew of affluent felons. Their offenses? Bribery, investment fraud, tax evasion, Medicare fraud, public corruption, computer hacking, and extortion cover-up money laundering, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, obstruction of justice, mail fraud, and wire fraud. No white-collar criminal left behind. The official White House announcement used the word successful four times to describe these elite outlaws, but made no mention of the ordinary people that they all victimized. Meanwhile, here on the ground, we can clearly see the villains and the victims. Take the secretive Sackler family who cashed in on the opioid crisis. Their pharma business collected $35 billion peddling OxyContin, the supposedly addiction-proof painkiller released to the public in 1996. While the Sacklers personally amassed a reported $14 billion fortune and joined the ranks of our nation's 20, 20 richest families, more than 232,000 fellow Americans died of prescription opioid overdoses between 1999 and 2018. Pacific Gas and Electric paid out nearly $5 billion in dividends to shareholders instead of using the money it collected from customers to upgrade miles of aging high-voltage power lines that executives knew could spark fires. The decision by PG&E to defer maintenance of a century-old transmission line caused the campfire in 2018, the most deadly blaze in California history, which leveled the entire town of Paradise, killing 85 people and destroying more than 18,000 buildings, most of them homes. As early as 2002, 
Several employees at General Motors, including a lead design engineer, discovered that the company was selling cars with faulty ignition sw switches. The defect, which caused engines to shut off suddenly and prevented airbags from inflating, killed at least 124 people and injured an additional 275 before a 2014 recall. And it's not just big business. We see these get-rich-corruptly schemes in government as well. In 2009, Robert McDonald was elected the 71st governor of Virginia on the promise of Bob for Jobs. Once in office, he accepted an engraved silver Rolex watch, luxury vacations, cash for his daughter's wedding, and loans from a wealthy businessman in exchange for access to state bigwigs. The governor's big benefactor got access, but during his four-year term, Bob's new jobs did not keep up with the growing population of Virginia. It's hard to stop once you start counting them up. In 2010, billionaire hedge fund manager Leon Cooperman and his investment firm earned nearly $4 million in profits by unlawfully trading on confidential insider information about the promising prospects of a natural gas company. Cooperman's victims were in the dark and sold their investments to him on the cheap. When the secret came out, the gas company's stock price jumped up more than 30%. Pressured from the top, from 2009 to late 2016, employees at financial giant Wells Fargo opened potentially three and a half million checking, savings, and credit card accounts without customer consent, slamming them with overdraft fees and other unauthorized charges. Instead of immediately stopping this ongoing fraud, Wells Fargo retaliated by firing honest employees who tried to blow the whistle, including one manager who told his supervisors and contacted the bank's internal ethics hotline about the suspected fraud. In 2016, after the truth came out, CEO John Stumpf resigned in shame. Yet the Wells Fargo Board of Directors awarded him a $134 million exit payment. Years later, in 2020, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, primary regulator of national banks, fined and banned Stump from working in the industry ever again. By then, though, the still quite wealthy 66-year-old had already retired. Elizabeth Holmes, a 2003 Stanford University dropout, built her blood testing firm, Theranos, to a $9 billion market valuation by 2015 on a shaky foundation of lies, fawning funders, falsified patient blood tests, and fraudulent financial reports. Her claims included that the U.S. Department of Defense was using Theranos' blood analyzer products on the battlefield in Afghanistan and, the company, and that the company would bring in more than $100 million in revenue in 2014. In reality, the Defense Department never deployed the Theranos products, and the corporation generated just around 100000 in revenue that year. After an intrepid journalist exposed the truth, Theranos crashed and closed down in 2018. The book Big Dirty Money by Jennifer Taub, subtitle The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. And welcome back, Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for all you do. I do want to disagree with you a little. I have a list for you. Of your disagreements? Al John Kerry, Barack Obama, Eric Holder, Robert Mueller, Chuck Schumer, Merrick Garland. What would you say all those guys have in common? I don't know. I would say they're all seemingly nice guys, highly intelligent, uh, some of them very eloquent. But in my opinion, the last 20 years, you know, as leaders of the De Democratic Party or people the Democratic Party is depending on to 
hold Republicans accountable. Their passivity and their aversion to conflict, their unwillingness to rock the boat too much, it's led us to this fragile state of our democracy. And your interview with uh, Sarah Kensinger, you know, it should be shocking to us all. So I would disagree with you, Tom. I think if Garland can't be pressured to uh, meet this moment and do his job, the job he was appointed to, I think President Biden's going to have no choice but to replace him. I hope you're right, um, Jeff. I hope you're right. I, I, I'm not sure what you're disagreeing with. I mean, I think he should be replaced. I wrote an op-ed months ago calling for him uh, to, be, to be fired and well, did a whole thought, rant on the show about told it. Her, yeah, I thought you told her that it would just... Biden really, it would be too much. It would be of a, a mess. Scandal. It would be, it would be yeah. an absolute mess. I'm, I, you know, and I think that probably you, Jeff, would acknowledge that. But I'm, I'm not saying yeah. that he shouldn't do it because it'll be a mess. I'm just saying, oh yeah. my God, it's just yeah. another thing, you know. Cause, yeah, because what's a bigger mess? Not backing up the one six committee, you I'm know, you. and enforcing the subpoenas, continuing to allow these frauds and this assault on democratic voting. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, Jeff, I, I, I'm, I'm, I surrender. <laughs> if, if, if what I said uh, sounded like I was saying that Biden should not fire Garland because, you know, he'd have a, trouble getting, you know, a replacement through the Senate or whatever. You know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different scenarios that would probably play out. You know, Ted Cruz right now is single handedly blocking dozens of U.S. ambassadors, for example, because he's pissed off about something. Uh, you know, it, it would be a problem, but I'm I, I'm fine with that. I think yeah. you know, the Justice Department needs to get about its business. And if Merrick Garland is blocking the, the Justice Department from doing what it needs to do, he needs to go. Yeah. And, and if and Biden sits back and doesn't do, and, and allows this to happen, he's going to be added to that list of people that I that I mentioned. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm he, with you. And, and, and I think that the acid test is going to come next week. You know, when assuming that it's next week, that the that the House, that this House committee is going to first they have to refer the the contempt citation to the entire house so the the whole house of representatives has to vote on it i i doubt that there will be i i doubt it'll be defeated i'm guessing that it'll pass then that referral goes from the house of representatives to the department of justice and they have a certain period of time to respond to it and i don't know what that period of time is i'm assuming it's a it's within a month but i i, I just don't know i i'm not even sure that it's statutorily defined but if it turns out that Garland is not doing this, you know, he's, he's got to be toast rapidly. He's got to be replaced rapidly. Jeff, thank you for the call. And, and my apologies again if it, it sounded like I was, I was saying I was backing away from my own assertion from back in, I think it was in June or maybe July. You can find it over at HartmanReport.com. I wrote a piece about it. You know, Garland has to be fired. If it seemed like I was backing away from that, my apologies. I certainly wasn't. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. All the folks who work on this program. And thank you to you for uh, participating with our program and spreading the good word and supporting our sponsors and our stations. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.